My name is Jim Fleming, and this is Our Sunday School. Our Sunday School is part of Stuart Heights Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. To prepare for this lesson, please go to OurSundaySchool.com for a copy of today's handout. Now, let's get to this week's lesson. Well, good morning. Dave, I don't have a mic either. We should probably do that. (laughs) We'll keep going for those online, but that's okay. (laughs) We're having fun here this morning. So if you weren't here 30 minutes ago, the, uh, the temperature in this room was, I shouldn't, I can't say that. No, I can't say that either. Um, I've filtered three times already. I don't know what I'm going to land on. He left me with a plug, right? It's like, okay. Oh, man, it was hot. So I, I feel like, like this is my sweat rag today. This is ridiculous. I've seen preachers step into a pulpit, and we're going to have to disinfect the whole thing now. Like this is where I'm at today. So fun stuff. All right, so if you've got your Bibles, we're in Mark chapter 12, and we are practicing flexibility today because we should. You're muted. Thank you, sir. Test, 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 one, two. Oh, now we're, now we're cooking with gas. That might be just a little warm for me. I'm going to get a bit louder toward the end. <clears throat> not like crazy, not like where I need the rag at the end, but a little bit louder. So there's that. All right, Mark chapter 12. So let's start off with our question that we ask each week. What is God doing in you? From the portion of Mark that we have studied so far. So what is God doing in you from the portion of Mark we have studied so far? So while you're thinking of your brilliant answers, I will greet some folks online. So uh, Chris Arnold, Amy Velosen, my mom. Hey, mom. Uh, Dad was giving me grief last night. So the Vandy boys won, actually it was this morning, at 12.08, I think the game finished. It was in the bottom of the 12th. It was ridiculously long. He kept texting me saying, oh, you're going to bump the start of Sunday school back a couple of minutes. You're going to start, yeah. Turns out we did. Uh, So Josh Landers, uh, Jen Ayers, uh, Nancy Miller, hey, good morning, my friends from North Carolina, the Greggs, uh, Valerie Hopper, and Ronald Dye, fantastic. Got a big crew, we had about as many online as we do in the room, so that's pretty cool. I figured it would be that way for a while, but we'll get there. All right, so what is God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark we have studied so far? Confidence to point to point toward him. I like that. How so? Hmm. <laughs> yes. There you go. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's right. Yes, Jesus is beauty on display in Mark. And I, I would argue he has just started to look spectacular. Um, I have started to, so I, I don't know if I've told you guys this, but I read uh, like the whole Gospel of Mark, um, I don't know, a hundred or so times before we started the series. And then each chapter several dozen times as we go through it, but sections of it. So I've started on the last section 
So like mentally, I'm already, we're walking toward the cross and going through that and looking toward the resurrection. And um, this, is, this is where uh, systematic study, starting at 1-1 one, one and working through the end of the book, frustrates me because I am ready to get like over there now. Um, but there's so much good still. So good. Thank you for sharing. Anybody else? Is God doing in you through his word from the portion of Mark we have studied so far? Every teacher has a number. I've talked about the number before. When you ask a question, what's the number you slowly count to before you say anything? My boss's number is 18. To say he is comfortable with awkward silence is an understatement. <laughs> Innocent people will start to confess things that they did not do <laughs> because his number is 18. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So, all right, well, let's get into the text this morning. Let's read through Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Only a few more weeks, Lord willing, in Mark chapter 12. It's like, oh. It's like a good friend we'll say so long to for a bit. All right, Mark chapter 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others. Some they beat, and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him, and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, Why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Jesus said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. And Sadducees came to him, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring, and the third likewise, and the seven left no offspring. 
Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. And as Jesus taught in the temple, he said, How can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls himself, David himself calls him Lord. So how is he his son? And the great throng heard him gladly. And in his teaching, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. And he sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people put in large sums. And a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, Truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. For they all contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Amen. So here in Mark chapter 12, in this section that we're looking at today, verses 35, 36, and 37, don't get used to these short handouts, by the way. There'll be a short one, Lord willing, next week, but then we'll get back to the normal length, so just FYI. Uh, We just come on the heels of this, uh, I hesitate to call him this one good scribe, but that's really all we get in the New Testament. We just get one good scribe that's an honest seeker that seems to be engaged, So right on the heels of this one good scribe, I want to read something to you uh, about the the shift in tone and what Jesus is is happening here. This is Edwards, page uh, 374. Uh, The preceding story, and this is verse 34, ends, ends with the note that from then on no one dared ask Jesus any more questions. Uh, Jesus has bested the field and debate is closed. Jesus does not quit the field, however, but he takes it. And I I love this mindset that we've been going back and forth and we've been going back and forth and he has bested everyone and now he is going to advance into his space, his physical space. Uh, And uh, he is going to start uh, questioning and and engaging in a different way. 
Um, so I'll, I'll keep going here. The uh, Let's see. The meaning of his person and the kingdom he proclaims cannot be understood by mere responses to human interrogation, especially when the interrogation is antagonistic. The questions and categories of the Sanhedrin, the supreme authority in Judaism, are not sufficient to reveal and encompass Jesus. And if theirs are not sufficient, no human agenda is sufficient to reveal or obscure, to prove or disprove disprove the meaning of Jesus. He couldn't fully demonstrate who he was just by answering their questions. He's going to go on the offense and show more and more of himself, exactly what we were just talking about a minute ago, Jessica. Happy birthday, by the way. Uh, the, the sentence that I love here, though, is he earlier declared in Mark chapter 2 that new wine cannot be poured into old wineskins. It is now his turn to set the agenda to determine both the wine and the wineskins. Edward starts preaching every once in a while, and that was a good little sermon that he gave. So I got to gotta give him props. So um, this time in this text, verses 35 through 7, his questioners are not really even mentioned because they are not the point. Right? And if you thought that the point was the Pharisees or the Sadducees or the Herodians or the scribes, like, they're not the point. Jesus is the point, and he is demonstrating who he is. So let's look at uh, starting verse 35 here. And, what's the, what's the next word in the ESV after and? As. It's not the next word in Greek. The next word in Greek, and the, if you read any commentaries or any study guides on this particular text, most of them will say Jesus is answering a question that has been asked that we don't have documented. The reason they say that is in the Greek, there is, and I've highlighted it there, that G611 uh, Strong's uh, 6.11, uh, Apocryminimi. This is uh, to conclude for oneself or to respond. So either Jesus is responding to what the scribe and the conversation they just left off, or he's responding to a question or some engagement we don't have access to. And again, we don't have everything documented that ever happened in the life of Jesus, and this is a good thing. So there's some type of a response here that Jesus is giving that the Greek text shows, but most English translations will leave out simply because it causes a lot of questions from the timeline, right? And if a red flag in your brain just went off and like, wait, they left out a verse because it, left out a word because it, yes, a red flag should go off in your brain, good. So, and as Jesus taught, now this is a present active participle, so this is his habit, this is what he typically did. Uh, And I will tell you that that this is not preaching that he is doing. He is teaching. And teaching in the New Testament is far more interactive and back and forth. Um, I, have, I have searched for a long time to find a linguistic or theological difference between teaching and preaching as described and defined in the New Testament It is very difficult to do from the words in the New Testament and from the context of the New Testament. I tend to see, and both open hands here, okay, like really both open hands, preaching is mostly one to many. Teaching is mostly in the New Testament a back and forth. Like that's, it seems to be about the only tendency that I can find. Now, 
Do the words mean different things? Yes. Preaching is to herald, to declare, to call someone to some action. Teaching is explaining. There is a difference in the actual words, but how they are administered, there's not really a ton of difference. Because sometimes in the middle of a sermon, you'll get a little bit of teaching, and you get back to sermon. And sometimes in the middle of a teaching, you get a little sermon, you get back to, and there's just a lot of, so I, I have tried in my teaching not to draw too fine a point between is this preaching, is this teaching. The Bible says this is teaching, so we're going to call it teaching. So we'll go with that. All right, so, and as Jesus taught in the temple, so again, they think it's their turf, it's his turf. He said, and it's the imperfects, this is something that's repeated, how can the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? Now, do you see that when Jesus says the scribes, he's, this is plural, he's not specifically talking about this one scribe that just came. This, is the re, this word being plural is why I don't believe the text supports Jesus is answering the, continuing the conversation that he just had with the singular scribe. This seems to be a to totally different topic, totally different audience here. And if this level of detail is, you're like, oh, I didn't, yes. Singulars and plurals matter. <laughs> they absolutely matter. Uh, so how can the scribes say that the Christ, pause. Let's talk about the Christ. What is the name of God's son? I'm going to take a drink. What is the name of God's son, the second person of the Trinity? What, what is his name? Yes, his name is Jesus. What are some of his titles? Christ. There you go. That's exactly right. His last name is not Christ. <laughs> I grew up convinced his first name was Jesus, his last name was Christ. And Lord was just kind of thrown in there periodically. It could be Lord Jesus Christ. It could be Jesus Christ our Lord. It could be like, I wasn't really sure what to do with the Lord part. But Christ was his last name, and Christ is not his last name. Uh, Christ means uh, the anointed one. Uh, and, and specifically, it was a reference to the Messiah. So we'll back up for just a second. Everybody was always looking for the Messiah, full stop. In this culture, this would have been the answer to all of their perceived political problems. Rome had invaded. Rome was taking charge of Israel in that space. They had set up all sorts of puppet governments all over the place. We read about these, corrupts, these corruptions in the Gospels. And the, the Jews looked for the Messiah because they interpreted the Old Testament passages to say that the Messiah is going to come, he's going to overthrow our oppressors and set us free. They were looking backward to what Moses had done and wanted another Moses to bring them out of this captivity and lead them. My favorite explanation of this is Terry Bolden, 10 years ago probably, he had a broom in his hand. You remember this? And he had a, he had a little cardboard box. And he was like, Jesus shows up, and he's this broom, and he's going to be sweeping clean the, the problems that have showed up and cropped up in Judaism. And the, the, the religious structure were looking for a rabbi that fit very neatly in their box. And Terry put the broom in the box, and it didn't fit. And he said, well, it doesn't fit. And he literally picked the broom up and threw it behind him. He's like, well, that didn't fit. And I thought, what a brilliant visual for, oh, okay. 
how often in my life have I looked at some experience and said, oh, well, this obviously isn't what God wants for me right now because it doesn't fit with my preconceived notion of exactly what I told God he should do. Those words taste bad, <laughs> right? So how can the scribes say the Christ, the Messiah, is the son of David? All right, so the son of David. We've got to stop here for just a second. I'm going to pull out. This is the first time I'm going to actually get to read from my pseudepigrapha. So here we go. Uh, if you look up the phrase son of David in the Old Testament, where does the phrase, here you go, Thesa, Bible trivia time. Where does the phrase son of David as a reference to the Messiah, where does it show up in the Old Testament? Perfect answer. It does not. Branch of David. Seed of David. Line of David. Family of David. Kingdom of David. All sorts of other things, but not son of David. And you might be thinking, well, why was this a trigger phrase then? Like, what in the world? All right. So there exist spurious theological works. One of them is the pseudepigrapha. So David, if you could put this up on the screen. So this phrase, uh, son of David, uh, is not found in the Old Testament. I wanted you to see the words spelled out because I am so bad at saying this phrase out loud. And I dare you to say it properly the first time. Psalms of Solomon. This is a work in the pseudepigrapha. Say it out loud. Just try it. Psalms of Solomon. Your brain wants to do everything it can do to say Song of Solomon or Psalms of David or anybody other than Solomon because what? Right? All right. So this is a pseudepigraphal work. <laughs> say that word 10 times fast. Uh, super spurious. This is like if you think the Apocrypha's got some issues, you're really <laughs> next level down, really odd stuff in there. Uh, and these were actually written or discovered uh, around 50 or 60 BC, the, the, specifically the Psalms of Solomon. I did it right. All right, good deal. I didn't think I could do it right today. The Psalms, they found them 50 or 60 years before Jesus was born. In Psalms of Solomon 17, verse 21, here's the word, here's the verse. See, Lord, and raise up for them their king, the son of David, to rule over your servant Israel in the time known to you, O God. This was the first time in Jewish literature that that phrase, the son of David, was put, was put to a very fine point. And remember, the people alive at this time, in Jesus' time, they were familiar with the pseudepigraphal works. They were familiar with the apocryphal works. They were familiar with the Old Testament. They told and retold and were familiar with these stories. So they would have known what this phrase, son of David, meant, even though it wasn't technically in the Old Testament text as we see it. So there, I got to read my pseudepigrapha. It is a wild and crazy read. If you, <laughs> I, won't, I don't have time for that today. All right, so um, the Psalms of Solomon 17, 21. So this is this, the association of this phrase, the son of David with the Messiah. So Jesus goes on, David himself in the Holy Spirit declared, and then he quotes from Psalm 110, which is in fact the most quoted Psalm in the entire New Testament. It's actually the most quoted any portion of Old Testament in the New Testament. Most of it comes from the part right after the part that Jesus quotes. It talks about the suffering of Jesus Christ. Jesus points to something a little bit different. But I, I don't want you to miss real quick that Jesus believed 
in the inspiration of the Old Testament text. Because he says, David himself, in the Holy Spirit, declared. The Spirit was working through David when David wrote Psalm 110. If you've ever wondered, well, like, where does the Bible say that the Old Testament is inspired? Right there. There you go. So, Psalm 110. Uh, this is, a, a, there's some debate on what this psalm originally was for. Uh, and I will tell you that I'm, I'm going to pull up one of my favorite pictures real quick, Dave. The, uh, the, the Messianic Mountains and the Prophetic Mountains. You remember this picture, right? Terry, Bol uh, Terry Brown. This is the Terry show today. Here we go. Uh, Terry Brown helped me see this. He was going through the uh, Minor Prophets several years ago, and he pulled up a picture similar to this. And I actually have a picture very similar to this in my office now, directly above my computer screens where I study. So I'm constantly reminded, and it, it's, it's so incredibly helpful, that is this for me? Is this for them? Is this for both? Is this for later? Is this, like, where does this fall? So if you're the person standing right here in the front and center, and God tells you something, you're a prophet, and God tells you something, well, it might have a very immediate application right here with the things that you can see very clearly. It might also have a very real application off in the distance, things that you can't even really imagine yet. And we know this to be true for many of the prophetic words that came to the prophets because they couldn't have conceived all of these different things that would have happened that would have resulted in the specific ways that God's truth came pass. But they knew that it would, and they were moved strongly enough that this was going to happen. So when David is physically writing Psalm 110, is he thinking about Jesus walking around in the temple, what is that, a thousand years later-ish? Yeah, within a hundred or so. Yeah, we'll say a thousand. Uh, is he thinking about Jesus walking around in the temple teaching this text? I'm going to say a hard no. <laughs> but he says some words through the Holy Spirit that testify of who Jesus is. And if you've been at Stuart Heights for more than a month, you've heard Gary uh, reference a text in Hebrews that references this text in the Old Testament as well. So what does it say? The Lord, and this is in the, orig in the, in the Hebrew, this would be Yahweh, the Yod, Het, Bahet, the Tetragrammaton, the, the holiest name for God. The Lord said, and I've highlighted the word said there because said's actually not in the Greek. It's just Lord, my Lord. And the second Lord in the Hebrew is a reference to uh, what we think is a king, right? So God is speaking to a king. Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. So this would have been the way that uh, David could have thought about the immediate prophetic application of those words. Very, very clear, very immediate. By the time you get to Jesus' day, this has turned a little bit. And they've started to think about this a bit more messianically, this might be somebody referring to the Messiah. You're like, okay, cool. So Jesus says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now we're going to come back to the text in just a second, but verse 37, David himself, so David calls him 
the Messiah, Lord. So how is he his son? I have a son. I have never referred to him as my Lord. And if you have referred to your children as my Lord, I would encourage you to stop it. <laughs> I'm all for uh, encouraging people, and uh, this, is a, this is a world full of discouragement. We should encourage each other, but that is not a helpful uh, approach. Right. Uh, and even if you thought, well... Well, you know, the David's, David's, uh, David's. Uh, if this is David's son, then how isn't he a lord as well? No, he's not king. No, no. There's only one king at a time in a country, right? There's one, one at a time. There should always be one, but there's only one at a time, right? So the Lord said to my Lord, "Sit." So this is a uh, imperative. It's a command. Sit at my right hand. Now, we look at this text and we say, this is the father talking to the son in his messianic role. So if you've ever wondered why Jesus is sitting at the right hand of the father, I would argue that that's where the father told him to sit. And it's why Jesus couldn't give, who are the two disciples? I'm forgetting. Who are the disciples that wanted to uh, sit on my right hand and my left? Who was it? James and John, yes. Jesus can't give that away. He's already had this conversation with the Father, right? That seat's reserved. That's mine. It's not yours. It's mine. And I'm going to show you why it's mine as you watch me live out the rest of my days on this earth. Right? So sit at my right hand. This is the, the, the hand or the side of uh, authority. Uh, until I put... There's a subjunctive here. There's this possibility of something not happening, but we know it actually is. Until I put your enemies, those that are hateful or odious or hostile to you, under your feet. Well, that feels like your enemies have been dealt with. Right? If my enemies are under my feet, I've never been in war. But if my enemies are under my feet, that's where I would rather have them. <laughs> than across the battlefield, shooting at me with something. Right? This feels like a good spot, like somebody has conquered here. So here we get to the point. So David himself calls him the Messiah, Lord. So how is the Messiah David's son? Now, does Jesus answer the question? He doesn't, does he? It's another one of those, I'm just going to stir you up. Just winding this thing up and winding it up until this tension becomes unbearable. Now, the answer, obviously is that Messiah isn't just David's son. He's God's son. That's how you can call your son Lord. If your son is God's son, he absolutely should be called Lord. So in this, we see the dual nature of Jesus Christ and that he is fully God and fully man, as prophesied through David a thousand years before in Psalm 110. And if your head just exploded, it should, because it makes sense then, and the great throng heard him gladly. And you're like, well, what's that about? Well, just to, for starters, uh, crowds are fickle because about two or three days later, they're going to pick Barabbas over Jesus. Like 48, 72 hours later, they're going to chant free Barabbas, free Barabbas instead of Jesus. And this, this word for gladly, the only other time this shows up in Mark's gospel, is Herod's feeling about hanging out and talking with John the Baptist. So this is a... 
This is not a deep abiding rooted in, joy, rooted in Jesus Christ joy. This is something that is fickle. This is something that is fleeting. This gladly. So, what do we do with that? Well, we can do a lot of things with that. I want to make sure. I will tell you, though, from the, from the, with the application and the personalization that we're going to look at, I do not believe these are necessarily true from the crowd's perspective, the people that actually heard the text. So some of these are going to be true from the crowd's perspective. Some of them they would not have understand. Some of them we understand very easily because we have all the epistles and the gospels that clearly make it plain. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is Lord. Fully God. Fully man. We get it. We've got these theological constructs in place. This makes sense. The crowd they're listening did not. So uh, application point number one, Jesus is Lord. Which makes him divine. Nope. Nope. Which is a recognition of his divinity. There we go. He's not made divine by anything. Sorry. Somebody's head should have exploded when I said made him divine. So if it did, good. <laughs> so Jesus is Lord. So what do we do with that? Recognize Jesus is Lord of Lords. Because there are other Lords. Right? You can go to certain parts of England right now, and you'd have to call somebody Lord because that's their official title. But both their knees are going to hit the ground one day. Application number two, Jesus is the Messiah. It's pulling the curtain back. Jesus is the Messiah. So recognize Jesus as the one true Messiah. You know there were other Messiahs? There were other people who came saying, I'm the Messiah, I'm it, follow me. And none of them fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies like Jesus did. Uh, number three, Jesus is greater than David, which I think is a bit of an extension of Jesus has already dealt with. He's greater than the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, the scribes. And now he's greater than David because David calls him Lord. Right? The words we use to talk about each other denote where we are hierarchically and from a rank perspective. Um, and I, <laughs> there was a desire amongst this crowd to get back to the good old days of David when we were in charge and ruling and reigning. And I would encourage us to be very, very careful about ever saying, let's get back to the good old anything, because the future is better than the past for believers. Like, don't get fooled that... X, Y, Z number of years ago was better than what Jesus Christ, our King of Kings, our Lord of Lords, the Messiah himself, will do. Because the future is always better for the believer. Always better. And then application number four, um, oh, personalized number three, recognize Jesus' kingdom as everlasting. We're going to do something more than recognize here in just a minute, don't worry. And application number four, Jesus is the Son of God. He is human as well. So recognize Jesus as the Son of God. So with the fact that he is Lord of Lords, he's the one true Messiah, his kingdom is everlasting, he's the Son of God, what do we do with all that? We repent and believe in his gospel. Right? We repent and believe in his gospel. And if you needed a Father's Day application, here you go. I'll check the box. I rarely do this, but here you go. Who your earthly father is matters, but who your Lord is matters far, far more. 
right? Like we will post all kinds of stuff about our dads, either the memory of them or thankful for them or, but no offense to my dad, but my earthly father pales in comparison to who my Lord is. I didn't get too much louder, Dave. <laughs> I did get excited, though. I love this stuff. It's amazing. It's incredible. So that is uh, the text for this week. That's Mark 12, 35 through 37. Lord willing, we'll start next week with Mark 12, 38. Uh, that handout is already at OurSundaySchool.com, so if you want to study ahead, you can. Uh, I did not get that handout done until yesterday, so it is not sitting over there printed right now uh, because I chose to watch the baseball game that would never end. Uh, and there's that. All right, so if you've got uh, a weekly update at your table, if you would, uh, lean in, engage, uh, pray over those prayer requests, make any updates uh, that need to be made, uh, put any new uh, for this week only or new ongoing prayer requests. For those of you online, I would ask that you do the same. Put those in the comments. And uh, after you have prayed as a table, you are free to go. So with that, Jesus is Lord. Amen? All right. Thanks for coming today, guys. I appreciate you. Thanks for engaging. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, YouTube channel, and weekly email. You can subscribe to all three of those at OurSundaySchool.com. Grace and peace to you.